You are listening to the Invitation Church podcast. To learn more about Invitation Church, visit us online at invitation605.com. You can also download our app on iTunes and Google Play by searching for Invitation 605. All right, tonight we are in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be talking a little bit about awkward transitions. Life is full of them. I think we have a picture, Brock, if you could throw up just a little picture for the people tonight. So this is Dave, age, I don't know, probably 9 or 10. I'm not sure what I'm doing there. That's just like a we're in the, some kind of photographic institution. I think it might be Sears way back in the day when Sears did family portraits. I'm not sure if I saw what we were having for lunch or if my, one of my siblings dared me uh, to make, I'm not really sure, but just had a lot going on kind of in that phase of life in a little bit of a transition from being like a really little kid and as you know you're like a nine or ten year old boy like you just do awkward silly things but lots of different awkward transitions like the moments when your house just gets a little bit more empty like when maybe your kids go off to college and it's like oh man like I'm not sure how I feel about all of this when your really little child is beginning to walk and they kind of enter the danger zone. Like the stuff that you didn't have to worry about before, you now have to worry about because they're walking, oh, I don't know, like stairs and things like that. Like life is full of awkward transitions, like the transitions of like getting your braces on anybody in the house. And kind of how that changes life for us. Like the things we would really like to eat, we're not really able to eat. But then even getting your braces off also feels like a little bit of a thing. You just can't stop running your tongue all over your teeth because you haven't been able to do that. And some of you are doing it now. You're welcome. In the scriptures tonight, we see this man named Saul. And he is at an awkward transition. And why is he at an awkward transition? He's at an awkward transition because he has spent most of his adult life pushing against the kingdom of God, pushing against Jesus, like advocating for another Messiah, another Savior. And then he has this miraculous, incredible, life-altering moment on this road. Like, think about all of the roads that you have been on in your life. This was another day in his life, leaving Jerusalem and going to Damascus in Syria. Why? So that he could arrest some people who were following Jesus. He could bring them back to Jerusalem, throw them before Caiaphas's feet, the high priest, and to destroy these people, men and women and children, but he's on the way to do that, and God interrupts his story and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I've got something better for you. I've got something better for you than certainty, and it's called grace. I've got something better for you than hatred, and it's called love. You don't have to push against me. 
you can walk with me. And what's happening on the road to Damascus really is kind of the reversal of what we see in Genesis 1. Adam and Eve later doing the thing that they want to do, pushing against the way that things have been created to be, and Saul we see doing that as well. But then he is forced to his knees and leaves that road to Damascus, and his life's been changed because he's encountered grace, because he's encountered love, because he's encountered a new way of showing up in the world, a new way of being. But it's sort of awkward because he starts to encounter people who only knew him as the dude who was pushing against the kingdom of God. And so the people are not really sure what to do with all of that. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure Saul knows what to do with all of that. In a very real way, the clothes that Saul's wearing just don't fit very well. You've been in one of those phases of life before. You're sort of in between a medium and a large, to be honest. That's kind of where Saul finds himself. So let's read it together. The heading in my Bible says Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. So Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished. And they asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But... His followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall, which is how everybody escapes an awkward situation. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, that's the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So verse 19, like right out of the gate, Luke tells us something, that Saul spent several days with the disciples. We have a little bit of a map of kind of Saul's journey. If you read Galatians, 
Galatians, we find out that several days actually means three years. So it's not like Saul spent Monday through Thursday with these disciples. Because you're saying to yourself, like, how do you conjure up, like, followers and deep committed friends in a couple days with the guy who was killing people for believing in Jesus? Seems weird, right? And so Luke is doing something and saying several days, talking about for three years. So here's what happens. He's in Jerusalem, right, and then is on his way to Damascus and eventually finds his way all the way back to Tarsus, right? So, and if you remember, Saul of Tarsus, this is where he grew up, right? So he's been just on this journey with God, and it's taken decades, and it's taken hardship, it's taken questioning, it's taken tears. And it's just good for us to remember in the house tonight that like our journey with God is not destination-focused. Like it's not wrapped around getting to the right place, but it's about the formative work of God, that we're going to take a windy road with God. Like it's not just A to B and it makes sense. It's not one of those journeys that you can drive without Apple Maps would be one way to talk about it. Where you could just describe to somebody, oh, this is how you get there. You do this and then you turn here and then that happens. Then don't Don't turn at the barn, turn at the next barn. It's not one of those journeys. I mean, look at all of the miles that God takes Saul on. Why? To to deeply root him in his way. So that grace isn't something that Paul just experiences. Grace is something that lives and rules and reigns within him so much that it spills out of him so that he can write to the church later when he's an older man, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, so don't brag about it. This is not something that Saul would have said early in his life. It's just important to know something about Saul, though. Like, Saul has this interaction on the road to Damascus, like, when he's in his early 30s. And we know that Saul, Paul, dies when he's, like, in his mid-60s. And we also know that most of his ministry, like, most of his usefulness takes place after age 50. So that's just, like, a word for all the 50-plus friends in the house. Your usefulness might be ahead, because it sure was for Paul. It was a lot of preparation. So when he's standing before these religious leaders, when he is being arrested, when he's being beaten, when he's running for his life, most of those things happen in between age 52 and age 62. So it's just not the young people who are useful in the hand of God. I happen to believe that might be one of the greatest lies of the enemy. So, Saul has a message. His message has two parts. Part number one, Jesus is the Son of God. 
That's what Saul has to say. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that he is identified with God, that God's identity is his identity. It isn't that here's God's character and here's the character of Jesus. No, God's character is Jesus' character. He is complete in himself. He's original. He's on his own page. There's nobody like him. And this is why Jesus gets in trouble. John chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 26. It's why he gets get accused of blasphemy. It's why the religious leaders are so mad and they tear their clothes and they put ashes on their heads and they weep and they wail and they want to kill Jesus because they say, who are you to say that you have the power and the authority to forgive sins? That's for God and God alone. But if you are the son of God, it doesn't mean that you're one of God's kids. It means that you are identified in nature with God. So that's why Jesus gets into trouble. They're not mad at Jesus because Jesus is saying that he's in the family of God. They're mad at Jesus because Jesus is saying, oh, I don't know, God and I are one. John chapter 15. So, two things. Jesus is the Son of God. And then number two, Jesus is the Christ. Like, he's the rescuer that Israel has been waiting for. Like, in a very real way, Israel is again in Egypt, trapped under the hand of Pharaoh. And they've been waiting for this Messiah. They would have called it, called it the Mashiach, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Christ. So, when you talk about Jesus Christ... The Christ part is the Messiah, the saving one. And there's this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You might hear it as like the Davidic promise. And it's this promise that the, there will be a king who will be enthroned over Israel in the line of David forever and ever and ever, perpetually. It will never come to an end. It always will be. And Saul just says, as he's teaching that Jesus is the Son and Jesus is the Christ, that the religious leaders, like, to continue to wait for another Messiah is idolatry. To wait for a, somebody else who's going to come save you. To wait for someone else who's going to come redeem you. To wait for another person who's going to put it all together, who's going to redeem everything is idolatry. It's, it's really, you're walking away from the first two commandments, which if you're a really religious Jewish person, that's a slap in the face. To say I'm walking away from, don't have any other gods before me, and don't worship any idols. But in Paul saying that Jesus is the Son and he's the Christ, He's saying, like, if you're waiting for another Savior, like, there's one that's right here. If you're waiting for somebody else, you have built a life centered around idolatry. And you might be surprised to know they don't really like that very much. They get annoyed and angry and frustrated, so much so, they want to kill him. So in verse 21 and 22, we see that honestly, in the life of Saul, that he's going to follow Jesus in every way. 
Like we see that he's going to perform miracles. Like later in the book of Acts, he had such a powerful reputation that people would just come and, and lay a piece of cloth. Like take a piece of cloth from him and lay it on someone's body so that they might be healed. And so we see Saul in the power of the Spirit performing miracles. And then we see him, he's teaching at the temple and he's arrested and ultimately he's going to die. And so we see this, this way in life of Jesus and this way in life of Saul like start to line up. And we see symbolism in all of that. In verse 21 and 22, the believers in Damascus, Luke uses this word for their response to this awkward transition. He says that they were astonished. And the original language says staggered. So like staggered, like I don't know, you've had a really long, long night with the baby. Ever been in one of those situations and you wake up and you're just like not really sure what's happening here. I don't know what day it is. I'm not sure what planet I'm on. Why am I in my same clothes, right? Or you get off a crazy amusement park ride and everything's just kind of spinning. The believers that Saul is interacting with, they're astonished. They're like, they're so taken back by what they see in Saul, because the box, the category, the label that they had over Saul's life is that he pushes against God until he comes to a place to embrace him as what? As son of God and savior. And they have two questions. Question number one, isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem? and for all who called on the name of Jesus? That's a very good, legitimate question. And then there's a second question. Hasn't he come here to drag us back to Caiaphas? Nobody there is really interested in being arrested and being taken in front of the high priest because they know what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. They know how that story ends. They've read the book and they've seen the movie too. So these two questions come out of this fear. And Ananias, Ananias is this incredible man. Like he's somebody, and he vouches for Saul. He says, hey, this isn't a trap. This person is a safe person. Like don't see his present in light of his past. See his present for what his present is. Like, give him some grace. Give him some understanding. His life has been changed and transformed. There's no explanation for what happens on that road to Damascus other than God breaking in in human history in a powerful, in a personal way in Saul's life. And all we know is that he's different. Like, we can't figure out what the equation is, like what forces came together. We just know that his life's been changed. Luke just tells us that he's a different person. And so Saul would later write to this group of people who were trying to figure out the Jesus way that if anybody's in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. And for Saul, anybody means anybody. Like if anybody's in Christ, if anybody has like turned towards the kingdom, anybody who's had ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that's receptive to what God wants to do in space and time, if anybody's in Christ, 
He's a new creation. She's a new creation. Anybody means anybody. And why does Saul write that? Why does he think that's an important thing for the church? Saul doesn't write that to the world. Paul's writing that to people who are gathering around resurrection life. That if anybody's in Christ, he writes that because he knows that people who are gathered around resurrection life are going to doubt that they're new. They're still going to see themselves in, in light of whatever happened over here and what Paul slash Saul wants to do as he wants the people of God to see themselves in light of resurrection power, not in light of judgment. So if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation, and don't let anybody tell you different, he wants to say. And then verse 22, sorry, 23 to 25. What Saul is saying and who he has become baffles the religious leaders. Like they, they can't get their arms around it, they can't understand it. And then there's this plot to silence Saul. And so he escapes from Damascus to Jerusalem. And he escapes in this basket. And if you're wondering, where in the scriptures have I ever heard a story about someone who escapes somebody hunting them down in a basket? Can I think of a time and if you're thinking of a baby, you're on the right track. And you may also wonder, oh, I wonder if the word for basket, if that shows up anywhere else in the scriptures. And oh, yes, it does. The word for basket happens to be the same word that's used for the ark. And so, yes, when Paul is getting in a basket and he's being lowered down and he's escaping does Luke want us to think about Moses? You bet he wants us to think about Moses. Because in that moment, God was making a way to walk out of this land of persecution, out of this land of hardship, into this land of promise. And Jesus says to Saul, on that road to Damascus that you will suffer for my name. Like, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy road, and it's just true in life. There's lots of things that we can suffer for. And Jesus says, hey, I'm calling you to suffer for my name. I made a list. We got a list of kind of some of the sufferings. So Paul is stoned in a place called Lystra. He's beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. This is, again, this is, he's older now. He's not a young man when this happens. He's the center of a public riot in Ephesus. That's everybody's dream. He's arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem. He's shipwrecked in the Mediterranean. I mean, I don't know. Like, think about that moment, like being 58, 59 years old in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and you're shipwrecked. Like, your muscles don't work like they used to when you were 22, when you're 58 or 59. And he's alone, and he's tired, and he's hungry. And he's calling upon God. And then he's held in custody in Rome for the final two years of his life before he's killed. 
He's going to suffer for the name of Jesus. But in that suffering, he is also going to experience the powerful presence of God, the grace of God, the nearness of God. I love what Dieter Bonhoeffer says about suffering, that suffering is the true badge of discipleship. That it's just, it's part of it. And that God meets us in the suffering. And then verse 26 and 27, the religious leaders are baffled, but then the disciples are fearful of Saul. And there's these two words that I think are so powerful if you're one of those people that feels okay with writing in your Bible. It's, it's okay to write in your Bible. Just let me hear that. Um, but two words, but Barnabas. Like just in case there's somebody here in the house tonight who sees your role in the kingdom as pretty small, as not really significant, here's a verse to push against that. But Barnabas. Because the disciples... They're not convinced. They're not convinced this is real. They're not convinced this is genuine. They're not convinced this is true. But Barnabas. Like Barnabas has something to say about that. Barnabas piggybacks on what Ananias did in a different city. And he vouches for him. And we see that the Greek Jews, they want to silence Saul. So he's taken to Caesarea and then back to Tarsus. And you're like, well, why does he go to Tarsus? He goes to Tarsus because that's where his sister lives. And we don't read this in the scriptures. We don't hear about. But if you read church history, you know that Saul's got a sister. And so he goes and lives with her for 8 to 12 years in Tarsus before his ministry really kickstarts. And so it's just like this little moment. It's just, there's always just more going on in our stories. Like there's a whole lot of people who are involved. Like in the kingdom of God, our, li- our lives, like the roots of trees, are intertwined. And those are the places where we're strengthened. Like, oh, I would love to talk to Saul's sister. Like, I wonder what they talked about. Like, I wonder what they prayed about. I wonder what they discussed. I wonder what God did in and through that time spent in that place where they grew up. How God got him ready for this next season of ministry. And then 20 years later, as Saul is writing this little scripture that we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So Saul is... 57, 58 years old when he's writing these words. Says that love's patient. I wonder how he's experienced the patience of God. Says that love's kind. I wonder how he's experienced the kindness of God. He says that love doesn't envy and it doesn't boast, doesn't brag. Love's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, but what does it do? It rejoices in the truth. Love protects and it trusts and it hopes and it perseveres and it never fails. And I just have a question tonight, like when he's writing that, 
what's he thinking about? Like, where, does, where do those words come from in his heart? And of course, they come from on high, yes. But what's he processing as he writes those words? I think he's, th- I think he's thinking about Barnabas. And I think he's thinking about Ananias. Like, these two people who were conduits, who were vessels for the love and the grace and the truth from God. I think he's thinking about the love from God that he experienced within his friendship with these men. I don't think he's thinking, okay, we got to have something in here for all the weddings. So, 1 Corinthians 13, let's get something ready for the weddings, or I don't know, even better yet, we need something for all of the Hobby Lobby decor. So, let's get that. 1 Corinthians, no, He's writing that for Tuesday. He's writing that for tomorrow. Like he's writing that because he knows that if we miss this, we may end up eating one another alive. And if we could ask Saul what it was like to come face to face with the disciples in Jerusalem and to Damascus who didn't believe anything happening within him was real and genuine, if not for Ananias and if not for Barnabas, who understood that love's patient and it's kind and it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, it protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres, and it never fails. But Barnabas. Church, you have no small role in the kingdom of God. You have no small role in the life and the journey of people. And what Luke is pushing us toward by telling us this story is that we should not back away from the place that God wants us to have in the lives of other people. Because you have not been created to walk a life of faith, a journey of faith, a road of discipleship as just a single tree. You have been called to have deep roots that are interwoven and interconnected, and we see the evidence of that in Ananias, and we see it in Barnabas. And so there's this call in this text to not back away from people but to lean in toward them. And there's a call in this text to not live your present in light of your past, but to live your present in light of resurrection. And that's why Jesus, a few hours before he's betrayed, gathers with his disciples in a house that, whose owner we will never know. And he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body that is given for you. Take and eat it. And he takes a cup and he pours it out and says, this is my blood that's been given for you. And then Paul later in the New Testament kind of takes that moment and pushes it a little further and just adds these words that whenever you sit at this table, whenever you feel the wind of this grace at the table, What are you doing? You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So make a practice of this. Like gather around this table 
Why? Because if anybody's in Christ, if anybody's in Christ, she's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Like what happened on the road to Damascus actually matters. It's actually more informative than what happened before the road of Damascus. It actually has greater power than what happened before. Why? Because God's doing a new thing. Because grace is on the menu. Forgiveness is on the menu. New life is on the menu. So we're not being called to live in light of all the stuff that's happened over here. Of course the stuff that happens over here matters. There's this old theologian, I won't bore you with all of this, his stuff, but he says something amazing that our past is a pond. It no longer flows. It doesn't have life. You won't ever be able to suck it dry, but it does not flow. It doesn't have power anymore. It's part of what Paul wants to say. So as we come to the table tonight, I pray that you would receive that in a new way. That you would feel the wind of grace and the purpose that has been spoken over your life in resurrection power. It's a great gift to know that our past is but a pond. And to be grafted into the way of the kingdom is to be a part of a raging water of new life that God wants to bring to all of the corners of the universe. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you tonight for the goodness and the grace of King Jesus and for the life that we have in his name. God, I'm grateful for the people who are gathered here tonight that are gathered in and around grace, that are gathered to proclaim that Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen again, and we're waiting for his return, but we're waiting actively. Not waiting passively, but we're waiting with great anticipation that there is work to do while we wait, while we trust, while we lean on the promise of his spirit, the promise of his grace, the promise of his forgiveness. And we thank you for the table and for how it sends us, for how it informs our steps and for how it calls us to move from where we are to where we're going. We're grateful that the table sets our pace. We're grateful that the table speaks identity over us. We're grateful that the table speaks that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's the Christ. We're not looking for another place. We're only seated near the King, a place that has been made for us. And we pray this believing. Thank you so much for joining us on the Invitation Church podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message that you just heard and receive every part of it. Every promise from God, every declaration of his great love for you, every word of hope, every reminder that you have been made for more. Allow what you've heard to take root in your soul 
to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. I also want to encourage you to be part of what we are doing here at Invitation as we invite people to live the way of Jesus. Go to the app and become a regular giver, an investor in the story that God is writing in this place. Also, if you found the message meaningful, we'd love to have you share it with someone else as you partner with us in carrying the message beyond the walls of the church. I want to thank you for being here with us. Grace and peace.